0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmallwaltham.com. So if you rewind back a little more than a decade to October 2012... I came to Boston for the first time. I was a pastor at a church in Dallas, Texas. Our church had formed a partnership with City on a Hill Church over in Brookline. And myself and a couple other pastors came so that we could get to know their staff. Our hope was that our partnership would be more than just sending uh, a check every month, that it would be uh, dynamic and relational. And so uh, we came up here to see how we could Uh, serve them and bless them over the next several years and happened to be at the time there was also a uh, gospel coalition New England conference happening that same weekend and so we thought it was a nice time for us to come Uh, and the trip was really really helpful. Uh, We made a solid connection with um, the pastors at City on a Hill. The conference speakers were excellent and we also had some time to do some of the boston New England things. We went to the North End and I met some of my people there and we uh, went to, you know, to some various spots along the Freedom Trail. Everything about it was a great trip. However, more than it being helpful, uh, the trip became a defining moment in my life. See, it was on that trip that I sensed an undeniable pull. There came this calling uh, something that was b- bigger than myself, to move my family across the country to uproot and to come plant Seven Mile Road. Now at that time, I didn't even know the name Seven Mile Road. I, I didn't know any of the, the pastors and the family of the churches. I didn't even know about Waltham. None of that uh, was on my radar. There were no plans formed. Um, there was just a pull, just a calling, just, just a sense that God was stirring ...in me to come and um, give our lives to uh, gospel ministry here in New England. And so um, I just sensed that I needed to to speak with the Lord and to pray. And so I went on an eight-hour prayer walk through the city asking the Lord for clarity. I, I remember it vividly. I remember passing through the Boston Common and calling Andy. She was back home in Dallas and saying, I think the Lord might be calling us to Boston... And she said, did you mean Austin? Because we lived in Texas, you know. And I said, no, I, I think there was a bee there. And, um, but there was this deep desire. There was a stirring and a calling. And um, I, I had already sensed a call to plant, but I hadn't, uh, the Lord hadn't pressed upon me a people and a place. But on that trip, everything changed. That trip became a defining moment in my life. Have you ever had these defining moments, these these points where you are faced with a pivotal question of great significance? See, everyone comes to these defining moments in their lives. You're faced with a decision of great consequence. It seems pivotal that, that you know you're standing at a fork in the road of life. And because of that, it feels weighty. It feels... Significant. It's, it's much more than just the everyday thousands of the decisions we make, like what to wear or what to eat or anything like that. But it becomes a big defining moment. Maybe it's the career choice we're going to take or who to marry or where to live. But it feels weighty. And sometimes we we feel the significance of it because we know not only will it change the course of our lives, but decisions like this have the weight to change who we are. We know that they're character-forming, character-shaping. Sometimes we approach these uh, decisions in our lives. Uh, sometimes they approach us. Sometimes um, just through uh, the circumstances of life, things outside of our control, we are faced with opportunities, decisions, tragedy that will ultimately shape our lives. And these moments, these big questions... They force us to ask why. They challenge our beliefs, and they cause us to behave differently. Either way, no matter if they come to us or we are approaching them, these defining moments end up being significant, life-altering, defining moments in our lives. This morning, as we continue our series through the book of Esther, we come to the defining moment in Esther's life. And she is faced with a pivotal decision of significant consequence. The stakes are high. The tension is demonstrable. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to see that it's a decision that not only changes the course of her life, but as she faces this decision, it actually changes her. As we walk through this passage, we will see Esther's defining moment And like all stories, the beauty of a story is that we're invited in as the readers to place ourselves in that story and to consider how we too might approach the defining moments of our lives. As we walk through this passage, there's going to be three main narrative movements. First, in verses 1 to 3, we're going to find the disturbing news. Verses 1 to 3, we'll see disturbing news. Then in verses 4 to 11, we'll see a desperate plea. We'll see a desperate plea. And then finally, in the last movement in verses 12 to 17, we'll look at Esther's defining moment. We'll see a defining moment in her life. So let's start together in verse 1 to unpack the story and see the disturbing news. Here again, the word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the kings gate, for no one was allowed to enter the kings gate clothed in sackcloth. Now, as we step into the story, let me quickly recap. This is like one of those previously on Esther. King Ahasuerus is ruling Esther, and uh, ruling uh, the Persian Empire, Uh, It's a kingdom, uh, the size of it, just to put it in perspective, is about 3 million square miles. That's roughly the size of the contiguous United States. It's a massive empire, and because of that, he fancies himself as an all-powerful ruler. But as we find out, he's not as powerful and limitless as he thinks. He's having a party as the the, the, the book opens up, it's six months long, he's just parading all of his wealth and power, gaining military and political support. And at the end of the party, he says to his wife, he, he, he calls upon her to come and to show her off, to parade her in front of this uh, drunken party so that she can be objectified. And yet, she says, no. She says no. And so in his anger, he deposes her. He removes the crown from her and, um, and relegates her away. And then, as if his empire wasn't large enough, he seeks to expand his reach into Greece. And this is what history tells us, the Greco-Persian War. You can read about it with the historian Herodotus. But we find out that the Greeks defeat him. And so he returns back to Persia without a wife, without the expansion, with a chip on his shoulder. And he's lonely and he's depressed and he remembers that his wife, Queen Vashti, is no longer his wife and she's no longer the queen. And so he goes on this mission to find a new queen. And so he picks for himself a new queen from uh, amongst a menagerie of young, beautiful virgins whom he stole from their homes and families. And one by one he forces them into his bedroom until he finally picks Esther. And she's this young, beautiful Jewish orphan who's been raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, and she becomes the queen. And last week, after a few years had passed, Mordecai, who had kind of like a mid-level role in the empire, just so happened to be in the right place. At the right time to hear of this assassination plot and he divulges this information. It saves the king's life and you would expect Mordecai to receive a promotion or some kind of large sum of money. Something to say thank you for saving my life. But we find out that he's forgotten instead of recognized. There's no promotion, there's no rewards Um, there's just this line that says the details were written down in the book of Chronicles, and then next page, that's it. At that time, we're introduced to Haman, and he's the antagonist of the book. And he was uh, promoted to be the king's grand uh, second-in-command. He's basically like the vice president. He's got a lot of power. Um, He's even above the, the, the cabinet and uh, while uh, he, he, he's very prideful and he desires that people would bow down and, and pay homage to him. But there's this one guy, Mordecai, who refuses to do so. And we find out a little bit of their history. We, we're told that Haman was an Agagite and Mordecai was a Benjaminite. And this is important because historically throughout the Bible, the Agagites and the Benjamites have a long history of enmity. Uh, if I could just summarize it quickly, it's like the Hatfield and the McCoys. They're just in this embittered family rivalry. It's like the Capulets and the Montagues. And so they just don't get along, and they're embittered against one another. And the Agagites are against the, the people of God. And so Mordecai, kind of in this um, r- r- religious pride, says, I am not going to bow down and pay homage to you. It's less about worship and more about, I, I, I don't respect you. And so that infuriates Haman that an insignificant Jew like Mordecai would refuse to honor him. And so all the, the welled up history of anti-Semitism, um, and all his own bitterness and pride uh, wells up inside of him as he devises a plan to not only annihilate him, but to annihilate all the Jews in Persia. And so the chapter ends... With um, Haman and Ahasuerus uh, coming up with this plan. We really see this all-powerful king being manipulated by Haman. And they decide to, uh, to, uh, to annihilate all the Jews. And the chapter ends with them having celebratory drinks after the plotting and planning the genocide of the Jewish people. They roll the dice. A day is decided about 11 months into the future on the day before Passover. And now, as our chapter, chapter 4, opens up, we find out that Mordecai hears of this edict. This, uh, this, this official law that has gone into the books that in 11 months, um, everyone everywhere and throughout the Persian kingdom is going to uh, uh, come together and annihilate the Jews. So Mordecai hears this and he responds by tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes. And then he goes to publicly mourn in the streets. Now what I want you to notice is that the threat on his life and the life of the Jewish people is real. It's not exaggerated. uh, Mordecai isn't um, exaggerating the details. It really is an edict that is going out. This is the planned uh, genocide of the Jewish people. And he understands what's at stake. And his response is appropriate. Now I know when we hear bad news, we don't put on sackcloth and ashes and go wail in the streets. That's not our form of lament. But that was a very Jewish thing to do. He is uh, expressing uh, the deepest form of, of lament. In fact, if you read throughout the Old Testament, you'll see repeated over and over. This is a well-known sign of grief. When when something feels um, exceedingly overwhelming and exceedingly uh, grievous, this is the way that you express that kind of grief. And it's not just Mordecai who responds this way. Look at verse three. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. I want you to know that as this edict spread throughout the empire, remember this is a time before the internet, so this is just kind of working its way slowly throughout these three million miles. Town after town after town is coming to hear about this news. And as as the news spreads, people begin to cry out and weep, Bitterly. They're going up against the, the empire. There's just nothing that they can do except to, in, in other words, preemptively put on the clothes of death. Because death is coming. Now I want you to think about the contrast so far in the book. In the first few chapters, everything is feasting and, 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 and there's luxury. In chapter 1, we have a six-month-long feast. We were told that it, had the, that it was decorated with the finest linens. Everyone's drinking from golden cups. There's extravagant food. Luxury and opulence have now given way to fasting and mourning. And we're meant as the readers to see this, this shift, this, this change. The whole setting, the whole context has changed. All the fine linens have been replaced by coarse sackcloth. Luxurious oils and myrrh have been replaced by ashes of sorrow. All the decadent food has been replaced by desperate fasting. Again, another detail to notice, prayer is not mentioned at all. But though it's not mentioned, everything about this response, both by Mordecai and all of the other uh, people of God, is consistent with prayer, repentance, repentance. And turning back to God. And so as the readers, we're we're supposed to ask why would prayer not be mentioned? Why would all the other forms of of grief be mentioned but not prayer? And I think this is because the author is making a particular literary point not to explicitly mention the name of God. If you remember, we said this is the only book of the Bible where God's name is not mentioned at all. Even though, as we'll find, God is really the main character of the story, and all of this is meant to uh, to show God's providential and sovereign hand throughout the story. Uh, instead of making big, dramatic, divine interventions, as is really common in a lot of the other books of the Bible, where God's hand is on. Uh, you know, is making the headlines. There's there's just dramatic movements of God. In this book, in Esther, it's more muted. It's more subtle. We're seeing God move through and in the desires and the details and decisions of real people in order to bring about His sovereign and providential purposes. It's helping us see that God is at work always, at every level. Not just in the big sweeping things. God isn't just concerned about the biggest things that are going on in the world. He is concerned about the, uh, the minute details as well. And in, uh, in this chapter in verse 3, the author uses a specific phrase, fasting, weeping, and lamenting. Now that phrase is also used in the, in the exact same identical order in Joel chapter 2 verse 12 Now, why is that significant? Well, Joel would have been written about 20 to 30 years before uh, the events of Esther. So it would have been been a known entity. It would have been a known prophecy. And the context of Joel is similar to what is happening here in Esther. There's this threat of impending judgment against the people of God. And often, as is the case, if you if you saturate yourself in prophetic literature, you'll find that a lot of the times when God brings judgment against his people, he does it through other nations, particularly a lot, oftentimes through pagan nations. And so um, what's happened is the people have grown cold in their affections for God. And in Joel, the Lord commands his people through the prophet Joel. Listen, he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting. With weeping and with mourning. And that's our phrase. That's the identical Hebrew phrase right there. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And then who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. So here's what is going on. This is very common In Jewish writing, to use um, exact phrases purposefully from other uh, Old Testament books to uh, essentially make a, to establish a link between them. So if we were doing it in our days, it'd be like a hyperlink. You know, when you go and you read an article and instead of taking all the information from another article and just copying and pasting and making this super long, too long, didn't read kind of article, we use hyperlinks. And we say, listen, if you want more information, if you want the background to this, if you want to be able to see the full picture of all that's going on, we put these hyperlinks in there. Well, this is a time before computers. I know that's hard to get in our minds, but instead of doing that, what they would do is they would put exact phrases and for a group of people who are in an oral culture where they have much of these things memorized, it triggers something in them to go and look and remember what's going on. It's kind of like when you hear a phrase and it makes you think of maybe a song or a, a movie or a TV show. Our, our brains kind of make these links and connections. That's what's going on here. I think the writer of Esther is saying, um, think about what's going on in Joel. The people are, have grown cold in their affections for God. God has prophesied and said judgment is coming through this other nation. And then Joel chapter 2 The Lord always gives an opportunity for the people of God to repent and turn back to him. So the writer of Esther is essentially saying, listen. Haman's edict of death is being used by God as a means of judgment and as an opportunity for the people of God to repent of their sin and turn back to the Lord. Now, does Haman know that? Is Haman... Um, working with God. No, Haman has no idea what is going on. He's not motivated by God. He is motivated by his own evil desires. Haman, apart from God, wants to annihilate the Jewish people. But God in his sovereignty and providence is using Haman in order to bring about his providential and sovereign purposes. In other words, Haman is a tool in the hand of the Lord's providence to bring about his purposes. And now the Jews in Persia and Mordecai specifically, what do we see them doing? We see them returning to the Lord, praying to him, fasting, putting on these, uh, these, these, these markers of repentance, sackcloth and ash, and they are expressing their grief for what's about to happen in culturally meaningful ways. It is, their, uh, it is their way to return to the Lord as they fast, weep, mourn, and pray. And the hope is that despite the disturbing news that the Lord will intervene. Why? Because as Joel reminds us, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and he is abounding and steadfast love. So that's the disturbing news. Now, let's look at verse 4 to see the desperate plea. When Esther's young women and eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. So apparently, we find out Esther is unaware of Haman's edict of death. The news that had been reported to her is that Haman's out—that uh, Mordecai is out there in sackcloth and ashes. So that's why she sends uh, new clothes to him, and uh, but she's but she's unaware of the, this edict, and so. Um, You know, perhaps the king's harem is sheltered from the day-to-day news of the empire. But in any case, she hears about Mordecai uh, being in sackcloth and ash. And so uh, she sends new clothes. Now, Mordecai refuses them. He doesn't want to put on a new suit. He wants to stay in a place of mourning... And so he, sends, uh, so he sends word back, I don't, I don't want your clothes. And so Esther sends her most trusted um, servant, Hathac to go find out, okay, what is really going on? Why is he in this place of mourning? Verse 6, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he, that Hathak, might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, If you remember in previous chapters, Mordecai has a uh, kind of like a mid-level role in the empire. He has some position of prominence. Now, he's not all the way up in the king's court, but he's not a scrub either. He's kind of like a mid-level manager, okay? Okay. He was used to conducting business at the king's gate. That's normally where he would go. That's where the business affairs, the politics uh, were, uh, were, were in, uh, conducted. But because he's got on sackcloth and ash, he is not allowed to go. In other words, uh, you, you, you can't go in clothes of mourning into the place of business. And so that's why he was relegated out into the open um, city gates. And that's where Hathach goes to meet Mordecai. And Mordecai tells Hathach. Hey, I want you to go tell Esther about this edict of death. And he tells him about how Haman has uh, orchestrated the whole thing to ensure the genocide of the Jewish people. Um, Mordecai gets a copy of the the edict, gives it to Hathak, so that that Esther will have all of the details, so that she knows that he's not misinformed. It's an official document. Um, He wants her to know that he's not exaggerating, that this really is going to happen. If you notice... He's very careful with the details. He's specific about the goal, which is the complete destruction of the Jews. And in this exchange, Mordecai tells Hathak that Esther needs to go to the king. That she needs to go beg his favor with the hope that he might renounce this edict so that her people, the Jewish people, would be spared. In other words... Mordecai is asking Esther to be a mediator, a go-between, someone to stand in the gap. And if you think about it, she's the most fitting person. Why? Well, because she is both royalty and a Jew. So she identifies both with the Persian Empire. She has um, somewhat of a a voice and, 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 and can have an audience with the king. And at the same time, she identifies with her people. Her two identities give her a unique opportunity to speak to the king on behalf of her people. However, we find out that there is a cost associated with being a mediator. Look at verse 9. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants... And all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Hathak goes back and reports to Esther all that Mordecai had told him. Now Esther has some serious reservations about going into the king's presence to plead the case of the Jews. So let's unpack that. Why would Esther have reservations? I mean, I want you, isn't she the queen? can she just walk in there and talk to her husband? But here's what we find out. First of all, it's been, she's been uh, queen for about five years. Years and she, and during this time, she has been hiding the fact that she's a Jew. If you remember earlier, Mordecai had told her, Do not reveal your Jewish identity. She did this because Mordecai told her. And now, Mordecai is saying, The time for hiding is over, and she needs to reveal her Jewish identity to this temperamental king. What we know of Ahasuerus at this point is he's got a short fuse. And at his discretion, he can depose the queen. So the question Esther is really wrestling with is, if I come out and tell him that I'm a Jew, how will he react to this news? How will he react to being deceived all this time? And then not only that, she uh, uh, tells Mordecai this law that everyone should know, that it's inherently risky to enter the king's throne room uninvited with demands. Persian law at the time demanded that the king have privacy and protection. Herodotus tells us, uh, a historian at the time, that there was a guard standing um, uh, behind the king with an axe, ever ready to come to the king's defense. It wasn't so much that the king would say, hey, I don't like that. It was pretty much like, unless the king intervenes, if anyone comes in uninvited, they shall be put to death. Only one of the king's cabinet members, this this group of seven, were allowed to enter into the throne room without first being summoned. This was a privilege not even the queen had. Entrance without invitation resulted in death unless the king held out that golden scepter showing his pardon. Esther is not one of the seven. She's a queen with no power. And To complicate matters, Esther tells us she hasn't been summoned into the king's presence in over 30 days. So remember, it's been about five years. Five years ago, the king was really enamored with Esther. But she's telling Mordecai, I don't think I'm, you know, the apple of his eye anymore. He hasn't called me in. I haven't even seen him for 30 days. The last queen, if you remember, to get on his bad side was deposed. We don't ever hear about her anymore. So what do you think his reaction would be for a queen who was not only disobedient but also deceptive? At this point, Esther has no reason to assume favor with the king. She has no reason to assume he will even hear her out. In fact, she has every reason to assume his temper will prevail and that she would be put to death ...for approaching the king. As Brian Gregory writes... ...all in all, the odds are heavily stacked against her. Nothing would indicate that an uninvited entrance into the throne room would go well. Persian law forbids it. The concealment of her identity complicates it. And the impulsiveness of the king threatens it. Now, I don't think Mordecai was unaware of the inherent risk involved... I think he knew about this law. I think he, uh, in, in fact, Esther makes it seem like everyone knows about this law. He knows the odds are stacked against her. And yet, as far as he can tell, this is the best shot the Jews have for deliverance. And so he makes a desperate plea. In no uncertain terms, Mordecai is asking Esther to take on the responsibility and the risk that come with being a mediator. Now let's look at verse 12 to see a defining moment. This is the defining moment in Esther's life. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows... Whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now keep in mind, all these exchanges are happening uh, through this isn't; They're not meeting face to face. And so every time you know, Hathak comes and delivers a message, then he's got to wait for the response and then go and bring it back to Esther. And the point is that this isn't a quick dialogue. There's, there's some time in between each message. Now, when we read it, it's happening much faster. But there's, there's time and, and thought going in to each dialogue. There's time to consider what's being said and consider how to respond. And so Mordecai considers Esther's words. He considers the weight of what uh, she's uh, telling him and the weight of what he's asking her. I want you to remember, for all intents and purposes, Esther is his daughter. He has raised her like his own. He knows that going into the king's presence uninvited carries the risk of certain death. But given all of that, Mordecai essentially says it's better to trust our life into the hands of God than into the hands of a ruthless king. Now let me explain that. For three chapters we have been kept in the dark on Mordecai's faith. We don't really know where his faith stands with the Lord. We don't know if Mordecai has been a faithful Jew all this time, just navigating life, complicated life in the Persian empire. Or we don't know if he's become complacent and compromised, where he's kind of given into maybe more of a Persian pagan lifestyle. I mean, We're left to wonder, has he been doing his best to be in the world and not of the world? Or did he grow accustomed and comfortable to life in Persia? The reality is we simply don't know. The author doesn't give us any indication. But in chapter 4, we do see a change. In the face of coming judgment and destruction, Mordecai's faith comes more into focus. And here we see that Mordecai has faith in the promise. Now, if you could see my notes here, I capitalized the the T in the and the P in promise. Because this isn't just any promise. This is the promise. The one that goes all the way back to Abraham. He has faith in the promise that God would bless Abraham and that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars and the sky and the sands on the shore. And you're going, why didn't hear him say that? How do you know that he has faith in Promise. Well, this is because he is, he's is a Jew, and this is like the defining promise in the life of a Jew. You don't have to repeat it because it's just ingrained and it's inherent in his life. Mordecai has faith in the promise, and, and here's how we know that. He says, listen, if you keep silent, if you don't go into the king and speak on behalf of our people, he says, I know That relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. I want you to listen to the logic of his faith. He knows because God has made a promise to preserve and protect the Jews... So that Abraham would have a descendants as numerous as the stars in the sea and the sands on the shore. That there would be a people of God. Because he knows and believes in that. He knows if you're not going to be the deliverer, it's going to come from somewhere else. Because I know what's not going to happen. The Jews will not be annihilated by the hands of King Ahasuerus. Something There might be persecution. There might be a lot of people who die. But I know that there will be a preserved remnant some way and somehow. These are his people. And come what may, God will be their God. He has promised over and over throughout their history to preserve and protect them and to use them to bring about his redemptive purposes for the world. And so Mordecai, maybe he hadn't seen it before, but here, in this moment, he is seeing with eyes of faith that allow him to see beyond this edict of death. In other words, his faith opens up his vantage point beyond the scope of his circumstances. Our circumstances can sometimes put blinders on us, and we get tunnel vision. But when we allow our faith to inform what we see, those blinders come off and we start to see things in a different way. We can see beyond just the very limited scope of things that are right in front of us. That's that's what's happening here with Mordecai. And he's challenging Esther to also see with those same eyes of faith. And so he says, if you won't help, help will come from some other place. Now, in keeping with the author's theme of not mentioning God's name, this help will come from another place is a veiled reference to God. What he's saying is, listen, somehow, some way, God will intervene. Because God will not leave the fate of his people to chance. And what's more, he tells Esther, I know, I know there's a risk involved with going before the king. However, I want you to be aware that there's also a risk of remaining silent and doing nothing for the people of God. In other words, he says to stay silent is to stand with Haman. If you keep quiet, you're essentially giving your approval of this edict of death. To stand with Haman is to stand against God and his people. And if you remember from our uh, walk through Genesis... That One one part of the promise to Abraham was, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So what, what Haman is saying is, listen, if you stand with Haman and you keep silent and do nothing, you're essentially becoming part of the people who are cursing the people of God. And there are consequences for being among those who curse the people of God. Mordecai is telling Esther that the time for silence is over. While it may have been wise previously to to hide your Jewish identity, the time for hiding is over. And he concludes with those famous words that who knows, maybe everything you've gone through, maybe all of it was leading up to this moment, this defining moment for such a time as this. He's telling her it's time to step up, take the risk, and plead for the life of God's people. What I want us to see is that in Old Testament ways, Mordecai is preaching the gospel to Esther. Now you might say, wait a minute, I didn't hear Jesus' name mentioned. I didn't hear anything about the life, death, and the resurrection of Christ. I didn't hear anything about sin and repentance and faith or justification. And you would be right. In the Old Testament, the gospel does not come through in 8K, um, uh, ultra-high-definition picture it's not like when you walk into Costco and you just see those huge TVs, right, and they, they blast you with all their 8K brilliance. That's not what you're going to find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the gospel is much more muted. What you have to look for is to find where is their faith and the promise. Where are they being faithful to what has been revealed to them at their point in history? Commentator Christopher Ash writes this. Who knows? Mordecai doesn't know how God will rescue his people, although he knows he will. But who knows? Maybe the reason Vashti defied the king and got dismissed nine years before didn't just happen. Perhaps the reason the king's advisors suggested the beauty contest and Esther won wasn't just chance. Maybe all of this has happened for a purpose so that you, Esther, can mediate with the king for your people At this time of desperate need. Who knows whether behind the coincidences and the rolling of the dice. There is a hidden hand. So ordering events that you Esther. One of the covenant people are in the position you are in now. For such a time as this. Perhaps Esther. God will use your courage and faith. As his instrument to rescue his people. And so Mordecai invites Esther to consider all of this. His words challenge both her false sense of security and her understandable fearfulness. And consider she does. Look at verse 15. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish perish mordecai then went away and did everything as esther ordered now if you notice up until this point in the story esther has been passive and compliant we've barely seen her say anything we've seen no trace of faith or fear in the lord but something has changed something has changed her and she springs into action and from this point forward in the story, Esther is a woman of faith. She's a woman of uh, initiative and courage and wisdom. In fact, of the 14 times she is referred to as Queen Esther, 13 of those happen after this moment, after this defining moment. It's almost as if even though she's been queen for nine years, at this point she finally becomes the queen. Now let's unpack her response. First, she express, expresses a, a, a dependency on the Lord. Again, it's veiled because the author's goal is not to mention the Lord's name, but all the signs are there. What does she say? She says, gather all the Jews in Susa and let's fast for three days and three nights. Let's get the people of God together. Let's pray and let's fast. And and, and, and just so you know, genuine fasting is always accompanied by prayer. The whole point is that when you feel the, the pangs of hunger, it's meant to remind you, pray again. It's time to depend on the Lord. And she tells Mordecai, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And that's how the chapter ends, just with this this moment where she says, listen, I am ready to take my stand as the mediator of God's people. And it ends on a cliffhanger. What I want us to see is that she has come face to face with this pivotal, significant, weighty, life-altering, fork-in-the-road, defining moment in her life. And she has decided to risk her life for her people. It's a transformation of character, but I want you to see it's even more than that. Mordecai has confronted her with truth. Mordecai has reminded her of the promise of God, and she's in other words been put. She's been called to put her faith in the God of that promise. And so, what we see happening is that by grace through faith, she has been transformed. She accepts the risks to stand as mediator for her people and that's how the chapter ends and we that's where we're going to end today because we're not going to to go into the next chapter but i do want us to consider as we close how do we apply a text like this so we've walked through the story and so now it's time for us to ask like what do we do with that let me just say when we come to old testament narratives the answer is never simply be like blank like, read this and go, hey, be like David. That's what you're supposed to do. Or be like Moses, or be like Mordecai, or be like Esther. The problem with that kind of direct line is it's too simplistic and it's not transformative. It's not gospel-centered. See, often our initial instinct when we read these stories is to is to find the person in the story we like the most, usually the hero, and we go, How, I'm, I'm kind of like them. How can I be like them how can I be like this character how can I go through the defining moments in my life so I can shine like Esther how can I be like her how can I have her courage how can I face the defining moments of my life and make the right call and I'm going to tell you there is a place for that and we're going to get there but that direct line lacks the depth and power that the Bible offers here's what I want to encourage us to do When we read these Old Testament stories, and we try to do this in our preaching, is to teach you to draw the line first and foremost to Christ. In fact, Jesus told us to do this. He said everything in the law and the prophets and most all of the Old Testament, Jesus was saying, is pointing to me. And So our job is to go, well, how then does this point to Jesus? In other words, when we read Esther, the first line to draw is not from Esther to you, but Esther to you. To Jesus. See, Esther is pointing us to a truer and greater mediator. See, Esther is casting a shadow, giving us a taste of a truer and greater mediator. She is a mediator, but she is pointing us on the one, for, uh, to the one to come. So think about it. Esther's defining moment is pointing us to the defining moment in the history of the world. Where hers took place in a Persian palace, his would take place in a Palestinian garden. As she considered the fate of the Jewish people, Jesus considered the fate of the world. Esther was troubled, and rightly so, and felt the pressure of the decision before her. As Christ faced his defining moment, he became sorrowful and sweat drops of blood. Esther called for her people to hold a fast and pray for her. And Jesus also called for his disciples to pray, and they fell asleep. Esther took on the symbolic clothes of, of death, putting on sackcloth and ashes, where Jesus took on the actual weight of the cross and the pain of the nails to enter into death literally. Esther responded to her defining moment with the knowledge that she might perish, while Christ responded to his defining moment with the absolute knowledge that he would, in fact, perish. See, Esther did stand in the gap for her people, but it's pointing us to the one who stood in the gap for you and me. When we read these Old Testament stories, we need to draw the line to Christ and ask, how does this character, how does this story point me to the redemption that I have in Christ We don't just want to collect moral platitudes and principles. The Bible is not a Christian's Aesop's fables with good stories and characters to teach us moral lessons. The Bible is primarily story after story that exposes our need for a Savior. As you read Esther, as you enter in, you should see we should really be identifying with the Jewish people. Where there is an edict of death over us against an enemy more powerful than we are. And all we can do is grieve and cry out to the Lord, Lord, send us a savior. And that's what he's done for us in Christ. Esther will ultimately stand in the gap for her people. And they will be spared from Haman's edict of death. But that's where she stops. She can go no further what we need is a savior that can save us from sin's edict of death and that is something that only Jesus can do our primary response to Esther's story is to see our need for a mediator and to be grateful that God has sent one in the person and work of Jesus Christ who willingly gave up his life to save us from our sins And as his grace begins to change us and we become more like him, we will start to uh, acknowledge and see our self-centeredness, our selfishness, our tendency towards self exaltation and self-preservation. We will begin to see it for the lie that it is. We'll begin to see that there is a better way and when that happens as we start to change here's what happens we will start to approach those defining moments those pivotal decisions in our life and we'll do so from a different point of view we'll do so because we're being changed from the inside out and see it doesn't really matter like what that decision is it could be you know what profession to choose uh, who to marry where to live how you respond to tragedy and moments of crisis all of those you will face those in your life, but if you are being changed by the grace of Christ from the inside out, you will approach all of those in a different kind of way. Friends, during the course of our lives, we will find ourselves confronted by pivotal moments and decisions of great consequence. And in those moments, just like Mordecai did, as he recentered himself, as he gained focus back on Christ, trust God's providential hand has placed you right where you are in that moment for such a time as this look to christ the one who gave himself up for you and rest knowing that if he's taking care of the biggest things you're facing he'll also take care of these smaller moments as well look to his word for guidance and face those decisions with a sense of rest knowing that because god is for us nothing and no one can be against us let's pray